Good morning. If you have a Bible with you, you could turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We're going to be looking at um, that chapter into chapter 12, verse 8. Um, in the chair Bible in front of you, it's page 592. We had our first preaching lab for the Pastoral Training Center residents yesterday, and several of them have promised that during today's preaching, uh, they're going to keep time, and they'll have evaluation sheets for me at the end of the... <laughs> to which I say, bring it on. Uh, no, that makes me a little anxious, actually. Uh, how the turntables. Um, e- 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 Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We're, we're, we're nearing the end of our journey through Ecclesiastes, and what we've seen all along... Um, are two key visions that Solomon, I think, wants us to have. Kind of a double focus he wants us to have. He wants us to see, first of all, perhaps with with one eye, the futility of life in a broken world. He wants us to do justice to the weight that we feel in living as fragile people in a cursed land, uh, a a place that, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, is groaning for redemption. He wants us to feel the weight of of that groaning. Solomon wants us to reflect on the temporariness of the world around us, the fragility of it, and the way that even though it's constantly changing, it's also at the same time constantly staying the same. He wants us to look at the world around us and see how transitory, how hollow, and how ultimately unsatisfying it is. But at the same time, he wants us to, perhaps with the other eye, to see the expansive beauty of eternity, of eternality. He wants us to feel the weight of the reality of the other world, the invisible world, to sense, in fact, that that world is not just out there somewhere, but it's actually in here, inside of our chests. As he wrote earlier in this book, the Lord has put eternity in our hearts. So while Solomon wants us to see the transitory nature of our material world, He wants us to stay tuned to the solid nature of the spiritual world. In some ways, it's it's somewhat counterintuitive, right? Because most people are used to thinking of the world that we can see and touch and and, and taste and hear as the real world and, you know, the physical, the thick world. And then the spiritual world is, because it's invisible, we see as less real, somehow kind of vaporous. But in biblical terms, it's actually the other way around. The world around us, which is passing away, is the transitory thing. The world that we cannot yet see, the invisible world, the spiritual world, is actually more real, more thick, as it were. So while in the ins and outs of our daily lives, our our gaze is so often drawn to the unsatisfying fulfillments that are around us, Solomon is, in effect, hollering down from his place in heaven, remember God, remember God. Amidst all the lamenting in this book about the meaninglessness of life, the central theme is really a call in the midst of our confusion, in the midst of our hardship, to remember God. And so it makes sense that he would return to this similar refrain in these last passages. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Send your bread on the surface of the water, for after many days you may find it. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you don't know what disaster may happen on earth. 
If the clouds are full, they will pour out rain on the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or the north, the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. One who watches the wind will not sow, and the one who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you don't know the path of the wind or how bones develop in the womb of a pregnant woman, so also you don't know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening do not let your hand rest, because you don't know which will succeed, whether one or the other, or if both of them will be equally good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasing for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if someone lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, and let him remember the days of darkness, since they will be many. All that comes is futile. Rejoice, young person, while you are young, and let your heart be glad in the days of your youth, and walk in the ways of your heart and in the desire of your eyes, but know that for all of these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove sorrow from your heart and put away pain from your flesh, because youth and the prime of life are fleeting. Chapter 12, verse 1. So remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of adversity come, and the years approach when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun and the light are darkened, and the moon and the stars and the clouds return after the rain, on the day when the guardians of the house tremble, and the strong men stoop, the women who grind grain cease because they are few, and the ones who watch through the windows see dimly. The doors at the street are shut while the sound of the mill fades. When one rises at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song grow faint. Also, they are afraid of heights and dangers on the road. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper loses its spring, and the caperberry has no effect, for the mere mortal is headed to his eternal home. And mourners will walk around in the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken and the jar is shattered at the spring and the wheel is broken into the well and the dust returns to the earth as it once was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Everything is futile. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the good news that you've given us. Help us to see it in this passage. Father, cheer our hearts this morning, even from a focus on hardship, suffering, even death. Help us to see the grace that you give us in Christ Jesus. Most of all, we must see him. And it's in his name we pray these things. Amen. The more things change, the more they stay the same. So Solomon now turns to end his book of wisdom. We'll finish out our series next week with the final passage. He's ending the book, but there's no plot twists. There's no new themes introduced. He's been telling us all along, life's meaningless, it's futile, it stinks. And he gets to the end and he was like, I don't know what you're expecting. It still stinks. (laughs) Chapter 11. He's doubling down on those double visions of the futility of earthiness and the only hope of meaning being found in God. And he does it yet again with a bit of poetry. Send your bread on the surface of the water, verse 1 of chapter 11. For after after many days, you may find it. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you don't know what disaster may happen on earth. Now, if you're like me, you read this and you think, what does that mean? (laughs) What does that mean? Well, maybe you don't think that. You're smarter than me. But I read this and thought, I don't know what that means. 
What I discovered is there's a number of interpretations. I'll tell you what my initial thought was, right? So some people think that these two verses are about generosity, that Solomon is commending, kind of being generous to the poor and to those around us, right? Send bread out, send portions out, those sorts of things. Some people think that these are about just the transitory nature of time, and that was my first sort of um, instinct in reading these verses, that as he's all along been talking about things are passing away, things are you know, turning to dust, decaying, and he does that later in this same passage, that we're going to return to dust, things, you know, things are breaking, falling apart, that I was thinking literally about bread upon the water and thinking, well, what happens to bread if you throw breadcrumbs out on the water? They dissolve or they get soggy and they sink. And maybe he's making some kind of poetic reference, again, to the transitory nature of time. But what I discover is that, interestingly enough, these you know, two verses likely have something to do with investing. The, the image of sending bread out onto the water might, in fact, be a reference to ships being sent out with cargo to trade. Similarly, the giving of portions to seven or eight might be a reference to a, a, a business investment of some kind of, of commerce. The importance, though, in both verses appears to be the uncertainty of the return on the investment. You send out your bread, you send those ships out, you give out your portions. Maybe the ships come back and the trade was successful. You get nice goods in return. There, there's a profit of some kind. Uh, you send out your portions, maybe there'll, there'll be um, you know, something good in exchange. Maybe you'll find it, or maybe disaster will happen. Where is Solomon going with this? I think he's leading us down the path of further acknowledging just how finite and just how not in control we are. This concept of... Um, uh, you know, giving and maybe you receive, it, it, it develops further in verses 4 and 6 in the sowing imagery. It's reflective in some ways of doing our work faithfully, of being diligent to be um, you know, prudent with our, our investments, prudent with what we um, invest our time and our money and those sorts of things in, to be faithful in those matters without knowing a guarantee of what the results will be. So between the lines, it's really a call to trust in God and not in ourselves. Even in our hard work, which Solomon commends earlier in the book, enjoy your toil, those sorts of things. In our strength, in our diligence, even in our, even in our success, let's say the return is great on the investment, even in our success, we are not sovereign over the results. We are finite creatures with finite strength and finite knowledge, which is a call to everyone who reads these words to, first of all, remember God made you. Remember, God made you. If you recall, in the early pages of Genesis, God creates Adam and Eve, and he made them good, and he gave them um, incredible strength, knowledge, and incredible possibilities. So this is before the fall, right? Just There's not just peace on the land. We just sang about shalom in the previous song, We Will Feast in the House of Zion. Shalom means peace, but it's deeper than that. It's almost like a harmony that exists between man and nature. It's, it's a, a restorative, all-encompassing peace. Adam and Eve experienced shalom before the fall. And they were given um, a great mandate, right? You know, cultivate, subdue, be fruitful, multiply. They have all these possibilities and uh, no restraints except 
as far as we can tell, one. The Lord puts a tree in that garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And do you remember he says, you can eat of all the trees in the garden except this one. From this one tree you may not eat. Why would he do that? Why do you think he would do that? I wonder if it's because he wants them to remember that despite all of their strength, all of their power, all of their dominion, all of their possibilities, they needed a constant reminder of something they couldn't do, something they were forbidden from doing. The tree was a reminder constantly in front of them that they are not God. And in fact, it was taking of the tree that was their attempt to be like God. And what they discovered in trying to be like God, to go beyond their bounds with this one thing forbidden of them, it didn't exalt them, it debased them. They became not higher than their physical being, they became more conscious of their physical being and more conscious of their creatureliness. And of course, we have inherited this fallenness from Adam. They bring shame and brokenness into the world deeper and more deadly. They bring sin into the world. And because of Adam, we have sin in us. And because of Adam, we have death upon the earth. Fallenness brings death. So we have bodies now that die. That wasn't the case before the fall. We have constant reminders of just how fragile we are, just how powerless we are to stop the passing of time and the wasting away of our outer selves. Chapter 11, verse 5, just as you don't know the path of the wind or how bones develop in the womb of a pregnant woman, so also you don't know the work of God who makes everything. It's God who makes everything, including us. God makes our bones develop. You didn't make yourself. God made you. Remember your bounds. Remember your limits. Remember you are not God. Verse 6, in the morning sow your seed, and at evening do not let your hand rest, because you don't know which will succeed, whether one or the other, or if both of them will be equally good. Can I give you a phrase that's really liberating? Maybe a personal mantra, if you will. Here's the phrase. I don't know. I don't know. Don't be afraid of saying, I don't know. You don't have to know everything. You can't know everything. Solomon, with all of his wisdom, is making us face the limits of our bodies and the limits of our minds. This idea of not knowing, in fact, is repeated actually four times just in this section. Verse 2, you don't know what disaster may happen. Verse 5, you don't know the path of the wind or how bones develop, and you don't know the work of God who makes everything. Verse 6, you don't know which will succeed. What is Solomon doing? He's emphasizing our creatureliness. He's emphasizing the fact that we have limits. We don't know everything. We're not in control. As Psalm 100 verse 3 says, it is he who has made us and not we ourselves. In fact, he's made us out of dust. We're animated dirt. And as Solomon puts it here in chapter 12, verse 7, the dust returns to the earth as it once was. I think even verse 1 of chapter 12, remember your creator 
is a reminder. We're going to return to this verse shortly, but it's a reminder, first of all, that we're created. To tell us we're a crea- we have a creator means that we are created. And when we remember that God made us, we will be that much closer to embracing the second call from this passage. Remember God comforts you. Remember God comforts you. He made you, but he also comforts you. It's not by itself necessarily a comfort that he made us. Because there is the idea of creation in lots of religions and even in quasi-pseudo-anti-Christian, somewhat looking like Christian religions, like deism, where there's a God who creates, but then he just kind of leaves you to your own devices. He just sort of sits back like a detached observer and see, to see what you will do. The deist will affirm that God made you, but it's the Christian that will affirm God who made you, that is the same God who will comfort you. It's helpful to remember that God made us, but it's healing to remember that God comforts us. Lots of people believe in a creator God who doesn't care about them, but we believe in a God who made us and loves us. So Ecclesiastes is so wonderful because it both reflects the awfulness of life, but at the same time it points to the awesomeness of God. Louise Erdich wrote that, Ecclesiastes speaks to people in tough binds. People with vendettas, a bone to pick, people with no dog to kick, (laughs) the sour grapers, the hurt, those who've never shucked off their adolescent angst. Herman Melville in Moby Dick writes that Ecclesiastes is the fine hammered steel of woe for the same reason the scholar Jerem Bars, whose testimony I shared with you a few weeks ago from Ecclesiastes, he came to Christ studying Ecclesiastes as a depressed and suicidal college student. We can count on Ecclesiastes to shoot us straight, but at the same time to set us straight. Chapter 11, verse 10, remove sorrow from your heart, put away pain from your flesh, because youth and the prime of life are fleeting. Chapter 12, verse 1, so remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of adversity come and the years approach when you will say, I have no delight in them. And what comes after in verses 2 through 4 is more on suffering, is a a portrait of suffering. In the same breath that we see the pain of life reflected, however, we see the comfort of God commended. Remove sorrow, he says. Put away pain. He says, well, how? How, Solomon? How do I get my sorrow tended to? How do I get my pain comforted? Remember your creator. Remember your creator. Solomon wants young people in particular to remember that God comforts them. Why? Because it's usually younger people, not always, but it's usually younger people who have more energy more strength, more ambitions, more vision for the future, more possibilities. And therefore, it's usually younger people, not always, but usually younger people who are most surprised when suffering interrupts all of that. If you've been around the block a few times, you've you've done a, a lot of laps in this life, you've been through some things, you've been through some hardship, you've been through some pain, just getting older, 
getting more frail, slowing down. When hardship comes, when suffering comes, you just sort of figure, it doesn't make it painless, it doesn't make it okay, but you just sort of figure, oh, this is life. <laughs> this is just what happens. One of the great benefits of being young is that the world seems wide open, the possibilities endless, and there's not yet been the great experience of great pain that comes with age. I'm not under any illusions that young people don't suffer or don't have hard things that they have been through or are going through. But the pain that comes with just the body slowing down normally, apart from disability, is, is, that comes with getting older. And so Solomon is telling us, remember the cre- young people, remember the Creator while you're young, before those days come. Why is he doing that? He wants young people to be prepared for what only God can sustain them through. I had a friend named Richard who died 10 years ago last month. Last month was the 10-year anniversary of his passing. He was only 32 years old. Richard and his wife had come to our church, and he had cancer when he arrived. So he, I met him as a man who knew, a young man who knew he was dying. Um, and in some ways, he saw that as a gift, actually, an advantage. All of us know somehow in the back of our mind, and maybe there's something that happens in our life that makes it more into the forefront. All of us know we're going to die, but people in Richard's position, they wake up knowing they're going to die. And in his mentality, this gave him an advantage, actually. It gave him a sense of urgency. And he was telling me once about um, this time in his late 20s, this was actually shortly before his diagnosis. And he and his wife were driving around. This is in Vermont. They were just kind of driving the country roads. And there was a thunderstorm that began to overtake them. And it was so bad. You know, the kind of rain, like, you, it doesn't even matter if your wipers are on full speed. You cannot see. Uh, the storm was so bad um, and, and so torrential that they had to just finally pull over. And he said what made it more miserable is that he and his wife, they were kind of in a funk themselves. They were in an argument, actually. And there was some tension, some conflict between them. And they were just kind of silent treatment. And you know, each other. And then there's this huge storm. And so they're just sitting there, just kind of stewing. And he said the storm outside was, was almost like it was, you know, metaphorical for the storm inside. And maybe the storm inside the car was even greater than the storm outside. So they just had to pull over and sit. And they just sat there in silence for a while. And then finally, someone had to sort of break the tension. And they began to talk. And they began to talk about the future and about their lives. And about how aimless they felt, how distant from each other and just distant from whatever God wanted to do with them, they felt. And somehow that conversation during the thunderstorm meandered in such a way that they came to a place of unity around um, a resolution to commit to God's will, whatever it was. They didn't really know what they were doing, but the presence of God was so palpable in that storm-battered car that they essentially said, we're going to abandon ourselves to God. God, whatever you want to do with us, that's what we'll do. What were they doing? They were remembering their creator in the days of their youth. And it was a couple of weeks later that Richard had his first seizure, which later resulted, of course, in the revelation of a tumor in his brain. And he fought for about three years, which is longer than they had given him. Went surgeries and treatments and special diets and all those sorts of things. Richard was a man who saw things differently, not just because of his suffering, but because 
Before it came, he said, God, whatever you want. Here's a blank check. Whatever you want, that's what I want. And he didn't know what the result was going to be. He didn't know. But he learned that God could be trusted. And I'll give you an example. He, he was adamant. Richard, it's, it's, it's different when you're talking with someone about their funeral and you're helping plan their funeral while they're alive. Some of you have had that experience with loved ones. And so he knew I would preach the gospel, but he was just really sort of, he wanted to know like what I was going to preach and how I was going to preach and all these sorts of things. And it was because he had lost friends and family members. And in his mind, he had cancer because God might use it to save lost people. That's how he thought about his, his cancer. And there was a moment where, um, and he had this for a long time, this, this outlook. There was a moment where um, the, the tumor had so affected him that he couldn't speak. And I just got wistful for kind of his voice and began looking at old messages, looking at old emails and things. And I came across an email that he had sent about a year before he died that didn't really, I mean, it didn't strike me as anything. It was basically, it started, the main thrust of it was updating me on his treatment schedule and things. You know, he was going to Boston for some kind of experimental something or other. And, um, but then he ended it in a way that was, as I was reading it freshly for the first, uh, uh, um, you know, freshly for the first time, but not for the first time, it finally landed on me, the end of his email. He closed his message this way. He says, I really feel so blessed that God would actually use me at all to attempt to bring him the glory he so deserves. Why me, brother? Now, I don't know if you caught that. The why me stuck, <laughs> sticks out to me because I began to put myself in his shoes a little bit and think if I was in his shoes, I would be saying why me, but not the way he's saying it. I would be saying why me, like why is God picking on me? Why would God let this happen to me? Why? It would be a self-pitying why me. But that's not how Richard meant it. Richard meant it the other way. Why would God choose me for such a privilege? The morning after he died, I was sitting on the porch of their home with his father, and we just were sitting in rocking chairs talking about mainly the funeral plans and, and, and the things to come. But I was trying to impress upon him just how much of a blessing Richard had been to me and how much he meant to me. And I was sharing about this email and just about Richard's outlook. And his father said, you know, he had that perspective from the very beginning. He, re he, he told me he remembered sitting in a waiting room with Richard, waiting for this bad news to come. And he's saying, the father's saying, no son should die before his father. And he said that Richard replied, no, dad, this is a good thing. God can use it. I don't know how you get there except by remembering God. Remembering God. There was such grace along the way in his suffering because he found comfort not in the surety of not dying, but in the surety of God. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. He might take you to some very difficult and dark places. For some of you, the adversity has already come. The dark days have come. You, you know those dark days. But for that, others of you, maybe you've been through some tough stuff, but those days haven't yet arrived. You need to remember God now. He will never let you go through these things alone. Remember God before the evil days come. Why? So you won't have to wonder when those days show up where your comfort comes from. So when suffering suddenly comes, you'll be holding hands with your comfort already. Because you're already holding hands with Jesus. In brokenness, in suffering, He is the only sure thing.
Everything else is futile. That's the last line of this passage. And it's one of the key points of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Trying to find comfort, fulfillment, joy, happiness, satisfaction, and anything other than God is foolish. Trying to hold on to your youth is futile. Because the suffering we all must face, whether old or young, is the suffering unto death. You you, you can't keep that away. You can't keep it at bay. Death is coming for you. Hopefully not for a long, long time, but it's still there. And it's still coming, which is where we must remember the greatest comfort. Thirdly and finally, remember God saves you. Remember God saves you. He made you, he comforts you, and saves you. And this is the ultimate comfort to remember because God is not simply the kind of God who comforts when you're in the the trial, when you're in the hardship, when you're in the suffering, who just sort of comes along and pats you on the head and says, there, there. Maybe he puts his arm around you. This is a God who can actually redeem you from the pit. This is the God who can actually rescue you from death. This is the God who can redeem all of the uh, suffering and the tears that you have sown. Remember, God saves you. It seems clear that Solomon isn't just talking about hardship in this passage. He's ultimately talking about the end of life. Picking up near the end of chapter 12, verse 5. The mere mortal is headed to his eternal home. Mourners will walk around in the street before the silver cord is snapped and the gold bowl is broken and the jar is shattered at the spring and the wheel is broken into the well and the dust returns to the earth as it once was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. This is a picture of death. Things falling apart, things breaking down, winding down, decaying, dying. Your body is made from dirt and it's going to return to the dirt. Your spirit will return to the God who made you. Now despite the finite limits on our brain, the smart people will read this and try to make something of it. What do I do with this? Let me just ask you directly, how are you going to deal with that? One day your body's going to be put in the ground and will eventually be indistinguishable from the dirt around it, and your spirit's going to go and stand before God. How are you dealing with that? As the Apostle Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 4, our outward self is wasting away. In chapter 11, verse 9 of our passage, Solomon issues a commendation and a warning. Rejoice, young person, while you are young. Let your heart be glad in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the desire of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you to judgment. There's maybe a couple of different ways to take the passage. There may be a kind of sarcastic tone in some sense. Young person, if you follow your heart, you know, the Bible says the heart's deceitful above all things. If you walk in the desire of your eyes, I mean, it was part of the desire of the eyes that led to the falls. Eve was looking at that fruit. She saw it was was desirous. It looked good. God's going to judge you for this stuff. Or it could be taken another way. Maybe the desire of the eyes and the the ways of the heart is, is a different angle than what has been forbidden before it seems to kind of comport with what Solomon has said previously just about enjoying good things in life. 
Yeah, enjoy life. Enjoy food. Enjoy drink. Enjoy the good gifts. Enjoy your spouse. Enjoy your work. He may be kind of saying the same thing here, but what he's saying is don't enjoy those things as ends of themselves. Don't enjoy those things beyond their bounds. Remember, you're going to be judged. So yeah, enjoy food, but don't look to food as your comfort or as a god. Don't give in to gluttony. Yeah, enjoy the beautiful things that God has created. Look at these things and, and give him glory for those things, but, but don't give in to lust. You're going to be judged by what you look at, what you enjoy seeing. Enjoy life, maybe he's saying, but remember, you're going to give an account for how you lived. You're going to stand before God at the judgment. Do you want to be able to stand before his presence blameless? Full of great joy? If so, then while you have breath in your lungs, remember, he saves and he alone saves. The only sure things in this life are not death and taxes. may feel that way sometimes. The only sure things in this life are death and the good news of Jesus. You're going to die. But the good news is that Christ has taken the judgment that is owed to sinners upon himself at the cross, receiving the wrath of God. And he has died in their place and risen from the grave so that his resurrection can be theirs too. Before you run out of time, know that belief in this good news will save you. It will give you life for all eternity. Jesus even says, if you believe in me, you'll never die. And even if you die, yet will you live. So I don't know what you're going through. Even among the things that we share in this church or that you share with the pastors or in your community groups or with your closest friends, there are still, for a lot of us, deep burdens, deep wounds inside that we don't talk to anybody about, stuff we don't let anybody see. Maybe you carry that around. Maybe deep down in your honest moments, you have begun to question whether God could ever redeem those things. Maybe you wonder because of those things and the way they haunt you if God loves you, if he has a plan for you. The same Apostle Paul who says outwardly we are wasting away goes on to say immediately, but inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Remember God saves. Remember God redeems. You must remember this now while you can. The dark days will come if they haven't already. For some of you, I know like the, you're in church this morning because this week you remembered God. This week was awful for you. Heavy, dark. You didn't know how you're going to get from day to day. And you looked at the weekend and you could have said like anybody else, you know what, I just I want to let loose or I want to chill out. I just want to give in, whatever it is. But instead, with the strength he gave you, you said, I'm going to remember God. The love of God is over those who trust in Christ. If you will turn from your sin and trust in him, he will unite himself to you. And he pledges to cover you. And if you struggle in your faith, he'll be faithful to you. If you forget him, he'll remember you. Your doubts are no match for his commitment to you. Your sins are no match for his grace. 
He will not leave you or forsake you. When Joseph was in prison, languishing away from crimes he didn't commit, God remembered him. When David was crying out in repentance of his horrific sins, crimes he did commit, God remembered him. When Daniel was thrown into a den of lions to be torn to pieces, God remembered him. When Daniel's friends were thrown into the furnace because they refused to bow their knees to idols, God remembered them. And when it came time to go to the cross, God remembered you. When it came time to rise from the grave and conquer death forever, Christ remembered you. And he took your name with him. And when your life begins to wither and fade, I hope not for a long, long time, but when it does and your cord is wearing thin and the golden bowl of your life is showing the cracks and that jar of clay of your flesh is drying out and you can practically feel the erosion of your body and you know the end is near, he will receive your spirit in his hand because he's been holding you all along. He will always remember you in your hurts, in your suffering, in your confusion, in your death, he will remember you. Remember God made you. Remember God comforts you. Remember God saves you. Let's pray. Father, we need your help to remember you, to remember these truths. We ask that you would bring them to our minds, not just when it's time to go to church or time to go to be our religious selves, but in those tough moments, laying awake at night, staring at the ceiling, feeling worn out, feeling lonely, feeling forgotten, feeling unloved, help us to remember you and to remember your great love for us. In the middle of the workday, when we don't know how we're going to get through the afternoon, feel like a hamster on a wheel or worse, help us to remember you. And when we come to the point of death, help us to remember you and thank you that those who trust in your Son are remembered by you. Because we are terrible, terrible rememberers. But your ways are perfect. So we thank you for your grace. And it's in your Son's name we pray these things. Amen.